to the USA Hockey Podcast, a youth sports conversation focused on providing players, coaches, and parents with engaging and informative content that they can use at home and at the rink. Tune in as we chat with some of the greatest people around ice hockey and youth sports. Join the discussion on Twitter at USA Hockey Coach. Now, let's drop that puck. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the USA Hockey Podcast. My name is Zachary Nowak, and this week we are welcomed on by Bob Mancini, who is the Assistant Executive Director of Hockey Development with USA Hockey. So, Bob, welcome on. Thanks, Zach. Uh, Appreciate you having me. Yeah, absolutely. Really, really excited to have you. I think this was a long overdue here. So um, definitely getting right into this. I know you've listened to quite a few podcasts in the past of ours, and uh, I'm sure you know what the first question here is going to be. But yeah, (laughs) as you're laughing, but before we get into anything here, uh, I would love to hear the Bob Mancini youth sporting experience. Yeah, uh, wow, we go back a long time, but it's, um, so I grew up on Long Island uh, before the Islanders started uh, there. They came in 72. So we had a team called the Long Island Ducks, which was an old East Coast League team, East Hockey, Eastern Hockey League. And, you know, everybody saw the movie Slapshot and that that was the league at the time. And I remember watching the Long Island Ducks when Johnstown came in and and all these teams, the Syracuse and, and Utica and, uh, and that's what the hockey was. So I was young and, of course, my dad looking for things to do. And my dad was a huge hockey fan growing up in Brooklyn. He was a New York Ranger fan. And uh, when I was about four or five years old, the story goes, he took me to Long Island Arena. And uh, we were sitting right at the boards. And this was before glass, right? It was just chicken wire around the ends, nothing on the sides. And um, uh, during warm-up, uh, skate as players do they go back and forth and a player came and stopped right at the boards doing his little sprints and the ice came over the boards and hit me in the face and I was hooked and uh, never stopped I was relentless in telling my mom and dad I wanted to play hockey and they couldn't find hockey on the island it was it, it, at that time it was hard to find and um Started skating on ponds when I was eight years old. We had a little pond in Seaford, New York. I started skating on Takapusha Pond and uh, with my family, with my sisters. And uh, I started playing hockey at 10. My dad found a rec league at Caniag Park. And uh, I showed up for the first day with figure skates on and had no idea. Um, And uh, a wonderful man named Wally Livingston who was the hockey director for the county, um, was so gracious and so nice and took me and my parents aside and said, you know, this is what you have to do. He has to get hockey skates and and everything. And we, you know, I made my parents run right out, get hockey skates and a stick and everything else. And I started hockey at 10 years old in the rec league. Um, and it was great. It was wonderful. And it was it was USA hockey under old USA hockey rules. As I progressed at 10 and 11, got pretty decent, where not only was I playing rec hockey on, I believe it was Saturday and Sundays, but then I got asked to join the all-star team. And at that time, it wasn't really uh, separate. You would play in your rec league on the weekends, and then uh, once or twice a week, really once a week, 
the best players from the rec teams would play on this all-star team. And that would be the team that would then travel a little bit, right? Not, not a lot. So, um, you know, I look back at it now and I'm going to digress here a little bit, Zach is I look back now in my position and think about how important it was when we USA hockey in our districts allowed players to compete with and against their buddies locally and then with the best players from a little bit bigger group to play against other players from other areas, right? And so I look at certain things, my youth hockey career, that was definitely one of them. And I continued to play both rec hockey and what was called this all-star hockey, probably at 11, 12, 13, and 14, before we were no longer in rec hockey. Um, and I don't know why, maybe it was my love for the game, maybe my dad, um, who was a huge baseball fan, I also played baseball. I tried football, I played one season. Uh, I never got my uniform dirty. My mother, uh, still at uh, 89 years old, God bless her, still brings up that she never had to wash my football uniform in a whole season. I think uh, I never, I may have played one play. Um, but I but I practiced. So I, I, I was doing multiple sports back when, who knew it, right? But then the real multiple sport was going down to the park with my buddies every day in the summer. And we'd play tennis and, and, and street hockey and baseball and, and anything. And that was the time. Um, so it didn't really start what would be considered travel hockey here until I was uh, 14 and 15. Um, but again, going back, Zach, probably the biggest defining moment was my ability to play in all these different leagues against all kinds of different competition. And, you know, maybe we'll get to talk about this a little bit later, maybe now, but we don't, we don't allow our players to do that enough. We don't allow them to play against players of their own ability, play against players of, of, of better, a little bit better ability and less. So I was playing rec hockey in two leagues because once I figured this out, I also joined our town league because they built another rink. So I was playing rec hockey for the county, rec hockey for the town, travel hockey with the All-Stars, and then finally made at that time what was considered a travel team. But I got to play both travel and high school. And that was normal. It was just normal. And, um, you know, tremendously challenged by this travel team I was on that was leading to junior B hockey in Long Island, but I got to play high school with all my buddies. And um, it, it was, you know, I, I look back and then I look at our rules now and why our rules are put in place and the coaches who have forced rules to put in place because they think winning is more important than the experience. And I really bemoan the fact that we don't allow children just to go play hockey at any level all the time. And, you know, it's the same fights that, you know, we have between your baseball coach and the hockey coach starting at nine years old. Baseball wants full-time baseball. The hockey coach wants full-time hockey. And neither one of them realize that's the worst thing for the child. The best thing would be to have this not just multi-sport experience, but this multi-level experience in, in every sport. Um, 
and yeah, it was a uh, it was a magical, magical time to grow up on Long Island uh, and play youth hockey. And then in 1972, the Islanders came. And next thing you know, there were 13 rinks on the island and there was ice everywhere and leagues everywhere. And uh, um, hockey really blossomed from there. Yeah, that's uh, that's really cool. And I love actually it's funny that you mentioned the rec league and all star uh, team piece, because that, that's exactly actually how my baseball was growing up is that we played in the rec league and then the all star team went and did some travel and it was fantastic and really enjoyable. But I love what you're talking about here with developmental groupings, almost like grouping kids by where they are developmentally versus necessarily always age specific, but even, you know, where they are skill wise, because some of the kids are going to be um, at a higher level now, or we know in the future may not be um, at that higher level moving forward. So um, I love that. What um, are well, there hey, any it's, it's interesting. I, I yeah. want to let's talk more about that before you go on, Zach, if you don't yeah. mind, because it is such a misperception by our parents. Yeah. And I don't want to generally say all the parents, but by so many parents and so many coaches that my kid has to always play against better kids, right? My kid's got to always play up when the reality is no kid gets better chasing the best kid around the ice, right? We know this kids, kids get better by playing with the puck, by making plays and the Swedes who do a tremendous job of development, right? They even have a formula for it, right? In their culture. And they, they want kids to play 60% of their time with players of like ability. And then they really believe that 20% of the time of playing with kids a little bit better is really important to your development. And that other 20% should be playing against kids that aren't quite as good. And they don't talk about playing against, you know, someone who's you're just way better than, and it's not good for both. But when you look at that kind of model, and we have some of that in the United States. We have it in, in rinks where, where kids are grouped in, in stations and, you know, they, they get moved up and down on a weekly basis and they just, that happens organically. But we don't understand that it is as important for kids to play against other players that are a little bit better than them. And it, that's as important as playing against kids who just aren't quite as good. And um, and you knew this was going to happen, and everybody will laugh because you're only going to get two questions in in the next hour. But I want to go back to your baseball experience, Zach. So you played on this this is wreck, and then you played travel. How were the games against your best friends? What what was that feeling like for you? Because I'm going to tell you what it was like for me when you had to play against your buddy on the travel team in that wreck league. What was that experience like? Oh, it was fantastic. I mean, it was, uh, you always, you had like, you ha always had it marked down on the calendar that I was playing for the, you know, Colorado Rockies youth team and we were going to, you know, go play, uh, you know, the reds. And I knew that two or three of my buddies were on the reds and I was so excited. But then at the end of the year, when we'd have the all-star team, we'd, we'd get together and we'd play together. And, um, but yeah, it was always fantastic. I loved looking forward to playing against them. So and yeah. that, and that's tremendous competition. And and I played for the Bruins at the Caniac Rec. There was they had the six teams were named after the original six. And I couldn't tell you 
the players on the all-star team that I was best friends with, I can still tell you that John Imholz played with me on the Bruins and Charlie Riley was on the Canadians and Stash Couchet was on the New York Rangers. I mean, we were 10 and 11 years old, but when we played against each other in those rec games, those were some of the most intense battles that we ever played because we wanted bragging rights. We didn't want to show up next Saturday night and be the guy who lost to the other guy in the locker room. And it was such a, a, a sorry to sorry to go back on that, but I, I mean, this is the stuff sometimes I think we're really missing in the youth hockey experience. And again, now it comes full circle that provided that environment of playing 60% of the time with kids like you and 20 and 20. Um, sometimes I'm a little leery to throw that out there because I think in our society, in our culture, in our youth hockey environment, people are then going to want to say, this is exactly the way it is. And that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about how do we create that organically so we have an environment that's best for our children. I interrupted you. Sorry, Zach. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you were gonna you were flipping the interview on its head there. I thought I was getting interviewed. <laughs> no, that's that's you know what, and that's exactly uh, the you answered the question before I even got the the chance to uh, ask it. So um, that's exactly where I wanted to go is asking kind of what organizations or even what countries are are doing something like that. And I know that Sweden has been uh, doing a pretty good job when it comes to those groupings and. Um, and we should give we should give ourselves a lot of credit, right? Our our um, our Congress passed uh, a rule in Tier One to allow vertical integration, which really is a great step in allowing coaches and players to recognize where a player is and giving him uh, him that experience. And I say him right now because right now it's just a Tier One boys rule. We're going to look at it and see if it fits on the girls' side, but giving him that experience of playing with players a little bit better with them and then going back uh, uh, with their team. So, you know, um, USA Hockey, I think I'd be remiss, of course, uh, USA Hockey, USA Hockey, the Congress, the Board of Governors, our volunteers and directors, uh, they really do do such a good job of trying to find ways to make youth hockey the best, uh, USA Hockey the best youth experience. And that's just one way where our, our, our people listen to what is good for kids and how can we fit it in our environment. So, you know, it, it may not be full vertical integration like the Swedes and the Finns have, um, but it's certainly a step in the right direction. Yeah, I agree. That's uh, it's, it's going to be really cool to watch and see that where it really takes kids um, moving forward. And so kind of uh, redirecting this back onto you and your um, your playing. You then, after your youth hockey, uh, you went on, played with the Austin Mavericks, played some junior hockey, um, and then even on to Colorado College. And now you're not working too far from there. So can you tell me about your uh, your junior hockey and college experience as well? Yeah, the junior hockey started out on Long Island. Junior B hockey was the old Met League. And it was a fantastic league with NHLers who came out of it. The Mullen brothers, Nick Fatiu, um, oh, geez, a couple of others that I can't uh, say off the top of my head. But um, it was a junior B league in Long Island, really the tri-state area. 
Long Island, New York City, Westchester, New Jersey. Um, and it was a great stepping stone for players to move on to Division One and Division Three college hockey. And, you know, um, I needed a little bit more seasoning than that. I had a lot of rejection letters uh, to play hockey. I had a couple of Division Three teams that wanted me to go and I had a goal to play Division One hockey. And um, so, uh, you know, these personal stories as you get older mean so much. Uh, my grandmother, who is gone now, um, she used to come and watch me play and she was watching me on a Sunday afternoon and another little old Italian man was watching the game. And this happened to be uh, Lou Vero's dad who was coaching a team in the Midwest Junior Hockey League in Austin, Minnesota. And my grandmother and, and Lou's dad got to talking and somehow these two old Italian people who uh, got conversing and my grandmother said that her grandson would love to go to Minnesota and play junior hockey. And uh, Lou Vero's dad called him up and said, I want you to give this kid a chance. And Lou dismissed his dad as we do to our fathers and said, yeah, dad, leave me alone here. I, I'm the coach, you know, thanks, but no. And somehow Lou's dad and my grandmother would see each other at the rink. And then finally Lou's dad convinced him to give me a tryout. And I flew out to Austin, Minnesota at the end of that season and made the team. Ended up playing two years for Lou uh, in Austin. The first year was the Midwest Junior Hockey League. It had uh, uh, the Austin Mavericks, Bloomington Junior Stars, the Hennepin Nordiques, and St. Paul Vulcans. And um, the next year, and, and this is why I tell the story, a little bit of history. Um, the next year, uh, the, the, the Hennepin Nordiques uh, left, folded. So there were only three teams. And it's hard to have a league with three teams. And the same thing was happening to the old USHL, which was a men's league at the time. It was minor pro. Their team started to fold, and they were left with Waterloo, Sioux City, and Green Bay. And somehow someone had this idea that these two leagues should merge. So the Midwest Junior League was incorporated in the USHL, and that was really the first year of the USHL. And the rule was the three junior teams had to have all junior players and the three senior teams had to have, had to have a minimum of five junior players. The rest were men. I mean, men who played semi-pro hockey on their way up and down the ladder. And, uh, and this was the league. And I remember being 19 years old. I, I was the captain of the Austin Mavericks my second year. And I remember going to Sioux City and lining up for a faceoff and looking across. And, and I was playing the left wing because Lou had us all play the off wings right, to get our shot off better and big, big fan of, of what the Russians were doing at the time. And I looked across at the right wing there and he was, I don't know, he seemed like he must have been six foot four with a full beard. And I was 19 years old and he looked he must have been 35. And I remember he looked at me and said, if you touch the puck, I'm going to break your leg. Now, that wasn't exactly how he said it, because I can't say exactly how he said it on the podcast. And I remember taking that shift, thinking to myself, how quick could I get to the bench and change? And it was, uh, but it made me a better player. That year made me a better player. 
Um, it was a wonderful experience. Lou Vero, who I consider one of the fathers of coaching uh, at USA Hockey and of, of, of just coaching in general in, in the United States, was an unbelievable innovator, an unbelievable motivator. Um, he was part friend, part mentor. Uh, I had tremendous, we all had respect for him, but a healthy fear. But he was a tremendous, tremendous coach that really, um, it was probably the two of the most fun years playing hockey I ever had because of Lou Vero. Um, and I got a scholarship to Colorado College because of it. And then uh, wonderful university experience. You know, I had such a, so blessed to have the experience I had. Uh, then I played for Jeff Sauer another icon of the game for four years at Colorado College. And Zach, I look at this and I apologize to the listeners who are already so bored with my story, but I appreciate you asking. I, because I went to CC and because I had played for Lou, Lou gave me the opportunity to work for the first ever USA Hockey Summer Camps. And when I say work, it was the end of a phone call, Vance, this is Lou. What are you doing this summer? Well, Lou, I'm I'm going to take some courses, stay in Colorado Springs. And he was, okay, uh, I want you to work the USA camps in Colorado. You're going to be the off-ice instructor. I was 22 years old, not even. So, well, yeah, yeah, I was 22 years old, 21 maybe. Uh, and, 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 and just like Lou, oh, and by the way, I'm not paying you, right? So, so I was working, but I wasn't getting paid. So the first year I did the off-ice training, but I always wanted to coach. My whole life was about being in hockey. And I asked Lou if I could go on the ice too. And he goes, yeah, absolutely. Go on the ice. Ask the coaches what they needed. And for two years, Zach, and those who listen to this and, and a lot older than you, and you're a student in the game, so you'll know this. For two years, I was able to get on the ice with guys like Tim Taylor, Mike Sertich, Herb Brooks, um, Jackie Parker, Jerry York. Bill Selman, I, I, these were the coaches that Lou brought together to be on the ice for our player development camps. And here I was, 22, 20, 21, 22, 23, my whole life, all I wanted to do was be involved in hockey. And the educate, Bob Johnson, the education and the experience I had being around those men, icons of the game. And, and, you know, I owe that to USA Hockey. I owe that to Lou Vero. Um, and it certainly launched me on this path. I played one year of pro after college um, in Italy. I was supposed to go back um, for two more years. Because at the time, if you played there three years and you could play on an Italian, you had Italian lineage, you could play on their Olympic team. And uh, that was the plan. And I came home. and. Um, Somehow uh, got an interview at Lakes. I shouldn't say somehow. I know how it happened. Lou Vero uh, once again inserted himself into my life and got me an interview with Frank Anzalone at Lake State. And I went up there and won the job in the interview process. He offered me the job before I left. And here I was on this Division I college assistant coach at 25 years old. And uh, I was aware enough of my lack of hockey playing ability 
or where I stood on the uh, in the level of playing um, that I knew I had reached my limit. I was uh, I looked back and I had a very successful Division One career, but I wanted a coach, and that was it. Started coaching at 25 years old, and here I am. Well, that's that's incredible. I I had never heard that story, and I know that Lou has been a pretty in fact impactful person in, in your life, and actually the lives of many others who I've met through USA Hockey. Um, and I just met him recently uh, at our goalie uh, summit, and it was it was great to talk with him and, and learn from him. I, I one of the coolest things he told me is um, he said the most impactful thing you can tell a player is I believe in you. And um, I thought that that was awesome. And just hearing how much he has influenced people. And, you know, to your point, uh, you ended up getting a, a pretty nice position uh, and started off your coaching career and what's led to now doing a lot within coaching. Um, so you then went off to Ferris State, assistant coach there for a while, then head coach for a little bit, then Michigan State as well. And um, then you had quite a journey through, but then ended up being a part of starting um, really involved with the NTP. So can you walk me through um, that? Because actually on the last episode uh, with Digger, he talked about how instrumental you were in, in the NTDP uh, in its early days. Well, that's very nice of Digger. I, and I have certainly appreciated it. And uh, so just to be clear, it was Lake State for three years, Ferris for three years, to the National Hockey League with the Quebec Nordiques, back to Ferris as a head coach, Michigan Tech, not Michigan State, as a head coach. Oh, sorry, and yeah. And I, I was a head coach at 31 years old, right? And Dean Davenport from Ferris State University thought he'd take a chance on me and forever grateful to Ferris State for doing that and and to Dean Davenport. And it was my dream job, Zach. I wanted to be a Division One college head coach. And it was the dream job. And I was on my way to being a college coach for the rest of my life. Um, but Lou Vero had instilled a love into you for me of USA hockey. And that started when I was in college. And um, so when I was approached to join Jeff Jackson uh, and go to the end, you know, help start the NTDP, um, it, it wasn't even a question. It wasn't even a question. Um, I uh, I got married. Two days later, we went to Boston for the World Hockey Summit. My wife, Laura, had never been to Boston or had the opportunity. We were going to do a little vacationing. I was going to attend the summit. And she had moved to Michigan Tech to Houghton, where I thought I would continue my coaching career. So we got married. Two days later, went to Boston, and on the next day, three days after I had gotten married, and you got a picture now, every box is of hers is in the home in Houghton, and uh, I had been interviewed for the head coaching job at the NTDP and didn't get it. They gave it to Jeff, and then Jeff turned around and asked me if I would come as his assistant, and um, I only tell that because... I never thought I would leave college hockey and then this opportunity came and I jumped at it and there've been some up and downs in my career because of it. Um, but I never looked back and I would never change it. So 
the NTDP was such a special time. Someone said the other day, no one knew what they were doing. And, and they thought I was going to get upset about that. And I'm not. Uh, this was a unbelievable thought and plan. I don't know if it started with Dager because I wasn't in the company at the time, but the board of directors and, and everybody else had this vision. And then they asked Jeff and I to really map it out and start. And we didn't, you know, we didn't have a building. We didn't have a locker room. We didn't have a schedule. We had temporary offices. Um, we were trying to recruit a team for a year out with nothing. Uh, on on trust on the USA hockey brand, which was very, very strong, but unknown. And um, it was a tremendously exciting time. And, and to look at Dave Ogren and Ron DiGregorio and the vision they had, and then to be part of that foundation and, and to help build what we see it is today um, has been incredible. And, uh, you know, Zach, you, I didn't think we were going to take this long on me. Um, and I know we're going in and out with other lessons, but um, I don't know if I fully can explain to people. Um, I fully can explain to people that how wonderful it's been to have been a part of two major initiatives at USA Hockey in my lifetime. Right. Uh, I was there at the beginning of the NTDP. And then I came back and I was there at the beginning of the launching of the American development model. So going back to Boston anyway, I just wanted to mention that just because, like, you know, uh, uh, my wife is the one who deserves the medal. I mean, packed up, changed to life, gave up her teaching job to move to Houghton, Michigan, and was literally there for less than two weeks before I took another job. And now we're off to Ann Arbor. Um, we hadn't even had a honeymoon yet. Uh, um, so, which by the way, I cut short because our junior team uh, had to go to Finland. And uh, um, so, yeah, it's it's been a wild ride. Well, that's fantastic. And I, I think this is a great transition because you did mention it. Um, you were there at the uh, at the start of really laying the foundation for for the American development model. And um, you were named one of the regional managers uh, in 2009, I believe it was, um, and really helped get all of that going. And we've heard so much already on the podcast about um, the impacts of the ADM with the Dallas Stars group talking about um, how much it's helped grow hockey in their area. And we actually also heard um, there's a recent podcast by Stuart Armstrong. He was on our podcast, but this was on his podcast with the Talent Equation. And he talked about how well USA Hockey has stuck with this ADM framework and as a result has had a ton of success. And other other national governing bodies have really started to follow what, what USA Hockey has done. And um, so can you... Can you dive into the ADM, kind of give, give me the history um, of it and you know, what is it, why was it started um, and kind of where it's gone since then? Yeah, uh, so interesting and so many avenues to take this in questions, but the American development model is really a framework for player development from eight and under all the way through to 18 and under. And, uh, you know, it's based on long-term athletes athlete uh, development principles. Um, 
It's about being player centered. It's about putting forth what's good for kids. And really, it's about giving the opportunity to every boy and girl who joins USA Hockey to fulfill their potential. And we don't know what that is, Zach. We don't know what a young uh, child at five, six, seven, eight is going to be down the road. Um, but it's so important that we understand what it is that child needs to do to A, enjoy the sport, build passion, return to the sport. Uh, it sets that pathway. And um, it's, it's so often misperceived is what it is. And that's probably been the most difficult part of it. Um, if we look back, and we all say this, and, and you know, when I talk to Kenny Martell and, and a couple of the regional managers or player development managers have been here since the beginning, you know, how were we going to launch this? And we made a very calculated decision that our best way to launch it would be to launch it at the youngest ages and then have the program grow with one of those youngest kids moved up the ladder. But that was that was filled with uh, with landmines and pitfalls that we never really could anticipate. And I think if we had to do it all over again, maybe we should have launched it at the very top of the development ladder. Maybe we should have launched, what does it look like for our 18 new players who are playing at the best hockey in the United States, tier one high school prep. And if we would have launched it there, would that have trickled down to the lower ages? And would we then have parents and players and coaches saying, oh, if this is what happening with our USHL coaches and how they do development, if this is what is happening at 16, if this is what's happening at our NTDP, oh, well, what's that look like at 14? What does that look like at 12? What does that look like at eight? Um, maybe in hindsight, that would have been a better way. However, if you look at the strides USA Hockey has made, as you pointed out, the increase in the number of players who are playing, the, the betterment of our practices in our practice format. I mean, you go back 12 years ago and you could walk into any rink in the U.S. and the chances of you seeing station-based practices, um, small area games, kids grouped by likability, uh, you know, cross ice, whatever you were looking for that we now know is the norm of coaching. I mean, you would have been hard pressed to see that anywhere. Will I say nowhere? No, absolutely. Because there have been coaches for 30, 40 years that have been using these principles in different areas, right? Um, but if you look at, in general, the landscape of USA Hockey coaching, USA Hockey practices, and what was being done, you were never seeing this. Now, you can walk into any rink across the United States and if you're watching an eight and under practice, I would guess there's a 90% chance you're seeing kids in small stations working on not just the physical, but also the mental, working on awareness, working on decision making, having fun, touching the puck, creating that passion you need to have players come back. You're seeing it now. 
And we're seeing cross ice hockey as a, a major, not just development tool, because this Zach is sometimes where we get in trouble. Oh, well, that's not for the best players or that's just development. What about fun? And we forget that fun and development go hand in hand at eight and under and especially at six and under. And it doesn't matter if it's the very best player or the very beginning player. Creating that engagement, creating that fun, creating that challenge, which our coaching education program hammers our coaches on over and over and over again, right? What are the five elements of a quality practice? Those things are the same. And, you know, I talked about two mis misperceptions that we have a lot. I'll talk about the third, and that is that the ADM is only for beginners, or the ADM is only for cross-ice hockey, or the ADM doesn't cater to the best players, when in fact, just the opposite is true. And I, at eight and under, I think one of the most difficult things for parents, coaches, administrators have been to understand that fun development challenging all of those things are development at eight and under it's not separate it's not oh this is the adm and now we have to do something different right and it looks different at 10 it looks different at 12 it looks different at 14 and and i think we never can stop in our department our player development managers in hammering home that message that the American development model is a player pathway for development at every age. And it's about the kids, right? And what can we do to deliver that best environment? So um, what was the question? <laughs> you knocked. That was that was it. That was perfect. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's really interesting that you mentioned that too, uh, about that kind of misconception of the ADM because uh, you mentioned it, but you talked about long-term athlete development, and we know that when you look at long-term athlete development, um, and even on the website, it goes all the way up to the playing at the international level. It talks about how do we best train our junior hockey players? How do we best train our NCAA players? And um, it's a really good point because we think of, oftentimes think of the ADM, and it's 8U hockey, and it's stations, and that's all it is. And if we just do that, we're, we're good. And, um, but you know, what does that look like at, at the highest levels? It's a fantastic point. Um, so really you talked about that, um, that growth that USA hockey has made. And, um, you know, for a while it looked like, I think it was in looked like 90, 98, 99 season to then 08, 09, when you guys really started putting this in place. Um, it looked as though, you know, male youth numbers were kind of stagnant. They were starting to even decline a little bit. Um, what have the numbers started to look like since the implementation of the ADM? Yeah, the numbers continue to climb right all the way up to this last year. And of course, if you take out COVID, the numbers have been great. I think also those act it'd be very remiss if as a development, as a hockey development department, um, we don't also talk about what our membership department has meant to USA Hockey, right? Kevin Erlenbach, Katie Holmgren, 
um, what they have done in their team to build membership. And it really is this, this synergy, this working together between these two departments that creates the youth hockey experience, right? Um, when we created uh, the American Development Model or Hockey Department for Youth, they, USA Hockey at the same time created this membership department or a focus on membership. I think we always had that department, but it was it was done differently, and I don't even know the history of that. But but you know that is as big of of a step for USA Hockey, right? This uh, what is it? Twelve years now, over a hundred thousand eight and under players. Um, that's incredible that USA Hockey is there. And when I talk about these two departments, and then I talk about how important uh, these two departments are in working together to create the right youth hockey experience, I can't, um, that can't be overstated because we often talk about membership and retention, right? The membership part is so important. How do we get kids into hockey? How do we get them registered? How do we get new players to want to try hockey? Um, and and the programs USA Hockey have, like Try Hockey for Free, and the things that are happening on a grassroots level are so important. So that that idea of getting kids to come play hockey is always step one. But step two, we often call is retention. But to me, that's a misnomer. It's not retention. It's the experience. Retention happens, in my mind, as a result of the experience. You can work as hard as you want. You're an associate out there. You volunteers, our volunteers are out there working as hard as they can to get new kids in, right? Creating local programming, um, having a welcoming environment, uh, making parents and players feel comfortable when they come to the rink for the first time that they want to stay and join, be a part of youth hockey. That's great. But if they have a lousy experience, they're not coming back. And, and I often say that's where we come in. That's where our player development managers come in. That's what the ADM provides. And that's why membership and player development go hand in hand. That's why registration and the American development model go hand in hand, right? Bring ch children into USA Hockey and then give them the greatest experience. Make them want to come back. Because retention can't be me going to you and saying, hey, come back to hockey right? Retention has to be what's happened for that 10, 12, 20, 24 weeks when that child was on the ice. And that means, and now we get into coaching, puck touches, a challenging environment, fun, awareness and decision-making. Because every kid, no matter what sport it is, no matter what experience a child has, they want to be better at it, right? Nobody wants to go and play a youth sport and say, oh yeah, I really want to do this for 20 weeks, but I don't want to get any good, right? I don't want to get any better, right? And and so then we get to, oh, well, we got to develop them. So now all of a sudden, in a well-meaning way, we're putting eight-year-olds on the goal line and skating them up and down, because in our mind, we got to get them better. We're really getting them better is creating the environment in which they want to come back, right? Because if they come back, we can help them continue to reach their potential. But, you know, a child that leaves the game, a child that leaves the game at 10 is never going to be a great 12-year-old if he's off playing soccer, right? 
we need to have them in our in our environments. So, you know, when we talk about numbers and when we talk about registration, membership, retention, experience, this is really one effort by all of USA Hockey um, to uh, create the best possible youth sports experience we can for our children. And that means, and that includes coaching and officiating. And you know, Zach, it's interesting because now in my position, I oversee officiating as well. And that is a space that up until almost two years ago was completely foreign for me. In, in, in fact, um, I had an ex-player who was very aware of the way I was on the bench when I was a young coach who made the comment when he heard I was, uh, I was part of an officiating task force, he made the comment that, are you sure it's the same Bob Mancini? Um, give you a little insight to how much I've grown as a, <laughs> but, but, you know, someone in the officiating department said to me, you know, I, I believe it was Ken Reinhardt, um, and, and who's our section leader, but I've heard it from other people as well. If, we don't improve our officiating. If our officiating officials aren't educated and, and brought along like our coaches and our players, they have the ability to ruin the environment as much as they have the ability to enhance the environment. And it was that comment and being in this position that has constantly now led me to talking about the youth hockey ecosystem, right? Membership, registration, retention, experience, development, coaching, officiating, right? All of this is one big ecosystem. I don't know how else to put it, right? It's one big, um, we're in it together and we can't, none of those areas can fail if we want to truly create the best youth sports experience possible. Well, and, and actually I, I quoted you in the last episode with Digger is um, the idea that we can't work in silos. And I, you say this all the time, we can't work in silos. Um, so it's, it's about breaking down those silos and building synergies. And um, just in your last um, two minutes there of talking, you've mentioned so many different episodes that we've had so far. So we had Kevin on and Kevin, so anyone interested in learning more about how membership works together with um, all of these other areas, Kevin was awesome. Katie's been on, uh, we even had Leifer with, with officiating. So, um, but I, I, you raise a really good point that none of, none of USA hockey, um, can work on its own and it has to all work. All work together which is which is fantastic um there's something there's something very special about the relationship between the national office and our volunteers and you know that relationship is strong and needs to be even stronger and continue to grow in that communication um uh, because when you see that happening, so it's not just in our office, but it's also everywhere else, right? And those conversations we have, that communication, um, you know, we are still a volunteer, a volunteer-based organization, and our volunteers in the field 
do great work to provide that environment we talked about. Yeah, that's that's awesome. So now we to your point that things have built up quite a bit with USA Hockey and um, obviously a lot of hands involved in, in being where we are now. So specifically in your department what is next what are what are you guys working on what are you what's what's kind of moving forward and what's really the future for for your department so i think in coaching it's continuing to go down this path of it's more important of how you coach kids than what you coach the kids and not saying that what you coach is not important but again how can we best create a great youth sports environment a great youth hockey environment so a new curriculum was launched uh, with level one about four years ago, and we continue to go down that road of how can we make coaching education a uh, fun, enjoyable. And, you know, I know our coaching education department talks a lot about we want every coach to say, I want to take a coaching course, not I have to take a coaching course. And I think, you know, with your help, uh, your leadership, Brent Seidel's leadership, Heather Mannix, all our Tim Serratore, all our people who were involved in coaching, Ken Martell, um, all our player development managers, keeping our eye on the ball of coaching education is important. The same thing is true with our officiating, officiating education. Um, we lost Matt Leaf, who's gone on another venture after 28 years, and that's given us an opportunity to look at our officiating department a little bit differently. Not better, not worse, but look differently than it was when Matt was here and has had such a strong presence uh, in USA Hockey for years and did incredible work in his time here. Um, but now we're going to focus on officiating education like we focused on coaching education the last four years. And that's going to give our opportunity to do things like more officiating men mentorship, which I know has been a, a, a pet project of Dave Labuda for a long time. We have officiating boots on the ground like we had in player development with our player development managers. We now have that on the officiating side. So um, we now have a more focused advanced officiating program on not just male officials, but on female officials too. So that's growing. Player development, um, I, I think is this idea of our player development managers being a conduit in their local areas, their districts that they're responsible for, but also this idea of creating more expertise by having them also be part, part of a 12 and under group or a 13 and above group and giving associations, administrators, clubs, teams, organizations, people to go to in our department that focus on how do we make the 12 and under experience better? How do we make the 13 and above experience better? Because they're very different things. Um, you know, we look at uh, uh, how can we create a better or a more, um, a tighter relationship with our 13 and over pod of player development managers with tier one in high school hockey. And then how can we also create a tighter relationship with our 12 and under uh, pod player development managers in what can we provide for local associations? Um, really excited 
about the launch of our dynamic skating, which I know you've had a part of our dynamic skating uh, course, which is going to be available. I know we're piling it right now, but it's going to be available to all associations, all affiliates, all districts this fall on how can we make learn learning to skate fun and challenging and using the word how can we make it dynamic where kids don't even know they're getting better at skating how can we include that right and um you know that that is one of my uh one of the things i'm most exciting to look uh, or most excited to look forward to yeah i know just recently at uh nars they did a little bit of a a small pilot on the on the presentation piece itself and watching Richie Hansen do it. It was uh, it was really, really cool. It was the first time I had seen it. Um, someone else do the do the topic. So for me, it was really exciting to see that dynamic skating. And uh, I'm really excited as well. You mentioned the officiating piece and seeing where officiating education and development goes. And I know in my head, I always I always think like, to your point, we focus so much on some of that coach education stuff and the change that has happened. And, you know, you've mentioned the five essential elements so many times, but um, we know that that's good for development. But where do our officials develop? Where does that where do they get the five essential elements? Where do they get practice? And they often don't. They're tossed into a game and there's a mentor with them. And but yeah it's it's tough so how do we how do we get more of our officials involved in practices and you know inviting some young officials out and having them you know call penalties for your cross ice games or you put a line down the middle and have them call offsides on some small area games that you have and and now all of a sudden we're really working together with coaching and officiating and working hand in hand and developing our kids in hockey and officiating and and everything else. So yeah, I, I'm I, I, really excited I love to see that, where that Zach, goes. You brought that to me and I think this is such an untapped area. I'm glad you brought it up, right? We saw uh, a group in Michigan try that last uh, last year for half ice games and during a try officiating for free event. And I know you have been championing that idea and I know our officials are talking about you know, is there a program where we can get young officials to go out to practice? And I look back when I was coaching youth hockey, um, geez, I haven't done it now for what, three years, but, you know, 10 years or more of coaching youth hockey at every age group. And I think of all the times it would have made my players better to have officials on the ice and creating a game environment that was real. And you know, is there something like that we can do? Um, and and is there is that practice for our officials? You know, and um, uh, I think that's one of the things that I'm hoping that our uh, youth officiating coordinators are going to look into um, and taking that idea that you just mentioned and saying, is this a program that we can launch in, in our, all our affiliates across the nation. Uh, and again, it's this ecosystem. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, there's some really cool things that are coming down the line and I'm, I'm getting excited just listening to you talk about it. And I know that 
um, there's there's a bright future with USA Hockey, and uh, since uh, you've taken your um, new position, and we didn't even really talk about uh, you coming in just recently um, with the as assistant executive director position and what you do, but you've covered that so well, and um, I think it would be to no one's surprise at this point in the podcast that Bob Mancini will now officially be the longest podcast that we've had thus far. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, Bob, I think we've covered so much stuff and um, it's a lot to digest already, but are there any other pieces that you really would like um, the listeners walking away with here today? Boy, you know, we did, we did uh, touch so much. Um, I'm not sure. I, I, I think anything I could say at this point would be just reiterating what we have, uh, what we've said already. But um, I, I can end with this because I, I, I just visited the Midwest affiliate and I've been a couple of other places. And I tell people all the time, whether we're administrators, coaches, referees, anything official anything at all right now um we can't ever forget it's about the children right it's about the kids and um i think we should constantly be asking ourselves this one question is it good for the kids and if it is we should do it and if it isn't we should go back and think about what are my other options and i think Zach, that's everything we do at USA Hockey has to be about the children. And um, I think I think we have great people who put that thought first in their mind, and we need, all need to continue to do so. Well, that's fantastic, and I love that. And, Bob, if anyone listening who made it this far wants to get in contact with you, um, where could they find you? Yeah, Bob M at usahockey.org. And uh, I look forward to, uh, or as you put it, Zach, I look forward to the three people who've made it this far um, to maybe reaching out and furthering this conversation. Uh, but thank you so much for having me. Uh, it, it really is a, it is a pleasure. And um, uh, yeah, I, uh, I love talking about youth hockey and USA hockey and um, appreciate you having me on. Well, thanks, Bob, for taking the time. I know you got a busy uh, schedule here um, the next few months. So um, we'll, uh, we'll end it there. But thank you so much for the time. And uh, for everyone that made it this far, I'm sure they listened intently. Um, and I'm sure it's more than three viewers because um, at least, you know, my mom and my dad. So that's two. <laughs> and then they're my mom and dad. They're listening, so, <laughs> so we got, we we got, got four. four for sure. Um, but no, thank you everyone who made it this far. Um, we'll uh, put Bob's information there with his email in the show notes as well for anyone that wants to get in contact. Um, and if you want to learn more about any of the stuff that was discussed, um, please reference back to a few episodes with Kevin on membership and Katie, um, but then also checking out our website at usahockey.com. Um, but until then, we'll see you all in a few weeks.